Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to the Friends of the Show podcast, episode 17, with one new cast member and an old friend returning for the first time in a while. John Cabral here with you, joined in person in Hyannis by Charles Condro. You deserve many different introductions, but the number one one this summer is you were the genius behind the Twitter this summer at Harbor Hawks. Well, I wouldn't use the word genius. but A lot uh, of people did, though. A lot of people asked me, who is that that's doing the tweets in-game? And I would say, it's Charles Condra. And they think, he is a genius. Well, it was really just kind of a spur-of-the-moment thing. I, I was telling someone the other day that uh, if something had happened maybe five seconds earlier or five seconds later, the tweet would have been completely different. It was just uh, whatever popped into my head. It's probably weird for most people, but I certainly enjoyed it a lot. And we're also joined by phone from Cooperstown, New York, by a man who probably would have put more butts in the seats if he had been inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame this summer than anyone that actually was. Darren Weeks, good long time yeah. friend of the show. Yeah, likewise. Too much uh, gambling baseball games on board, unfortunately. Just keep me out of the hall. Now, we're talking about three or four days as the dust is still settling. You have, of course, moved on with your life. We have not from Bourne's comeback 2-1 to one victory over Hyannis in the West Division semifinals. You got me again, Darren Weeks. You got me again. Well, it was uh, totally a surprise. I mean, especially when, you know, league MVP Max Pentecost tells the manager, Harvey Shapiro, he's leaving after Thursday's game. Harvey being Harvey benches him for his final Cape League game. And uh, we were able to pull through. So, um, you know what? We've always had this brotherhood with Hyanna. So if it couldn't be us, I was always hoping for you guys. And, you know, this time it turned out to be us. And now we're uh, tied with... Uh, with the sons of Mike Roberts hoping to um, to ruin their summer and move on to uh, the New Orleans Cardinals. So uh, one step at a time, I guess. I think it was your form of like not running up the score respect on me that you didn't hit the Harbor Hawks with any of your normal get-in-the-ditch-themed tweets that you come up with when your teams <laughs> win in tournament play. Uh, you guys are immune from that. I mean, I like to have fun with the Falmos of the world, but no, nah, Hyannis, I'm not going to do that to Hyannis. All right, so I've got to introduce you to Charles now. Charles comes to us by way of Yale and Richmond in reverse order. <laughs> Richmond, Virginia goes to Yale. And huh. your, his family is from New York. He is a New York sports fan. But then what the two of you have in common is a uh, tremendous interest in the Civil War. And so when I got to talking to Charles about that earlier this summer, I said, geez, this is reminding me a lot of Darren. I should probably try to do a show with the two of them because the two of them would probably get along well. I'm having to ghost introduce the two of you from a couple of states away, but I think this is going to be worth a shot just the same. Sure, sure, absolutely. My interest in the Civil War goes way back. You know, I had a great-great-grandparent who was a member of the Union Army who um, who died in a concentration camp in, um, in Florence, South Carolina, so it's, uh, I've always been interested in that. And, you know, I've, uh, I was in Gettysburg last weekend and made many tricks to, trips to uh, all kinds of places, Antietam and Bull Run and it's always been kind of a, a curiosity of mine. It's been somewhat of a passion, so it's, uh, it's something I've always been involved in. All right, they're speaking Charles' language now, so I'll let Charles chime in with your own. I, I know you have similar credentials coming into the Civil War. You have a family link to it. You have spent a lot of time going to battle sites and things of that nature. I, sure. now, um, I mean, I'm from Richmond, so obviously a large percentage of the battles, at least the ones that most people know about, are about an hour drive in any direction from my house, so I've had that growing up, but uh, my family's actually uh, carpetbaggers, and so um, my family, uh, I guess, connection to the Civil War is also sort of from the north. I had uh, an ancestor who died at the Battle of Gettysburg, actually on a cemetery ridge, got the Medal of Honor, 
back in 2010 because they used to not give it out posthumously. So it went to his uh, second in command, which was sort of the tradition then. And um, so he got that. And then his brother um, was in the Navy during the Civil War and was famous. Uh, his name was William Cushing for sinking the U.S. Uh, the CSS Albemarle with a handheld torpedo. Later went on to uh, go insane, but those were separate issues. Um. Now, you use that word carpetbagger to describe yourself and your family quite a bit. I've heard it used as a joke before, and I've heard it used to describe politicians who try to run for seats in places where they're not from. But I've never heard anybody really say it and mean it in the way it's classically meant. So can you explain to everybody who might not be as familiar with that term as you what you mean by that and how it's impacted you and your family? Well, uh, a carpetbagger traditionally was uh, someone who – in the Reconstruction era and in the post-war South, came from the North to the South looking to make a profit or to join in the uh, newly created Republican governments. And they got that name because they used to come down with their suitcases that were made out of – like it would sort of make them sound cheap that they had carpet bags. That was a material that the bags were made out of. And so I generally use the term just sort of good-naturedly because, I mean, we came down in 1985 and most people would have considered us you know, just traditional – people moving down south, but I like to use it because I'm such a big history buff. Gotcha. And I have had people use it towards me in ways that I think they were joking, but I really couldn't be sure. Uh, you never quite can be in Richmond. So I think it, to start here, and we're really getting this discussion going apropos of nothing, but Darren only has so much time as he's got his son. <laughs> Is his son Corey setting the world on fire on the diamond today? Yeah, he's, uh, he's playing well. He's one of two Cape Cod teams playing here in Cooperstown, so... He's um he's doing well, so we're uh, we're losing right now to a New Jersey team, but we're having fun. So, but it's funny. It, it, to, to his point, um, the carpetbagger phrase. There's so many parts of the American lexicon as far as vocabulary that comes from the Civil War. You know, carpetbagger is one is one of the famous ones. You hear all these these phrases, and you know, you look at a lot of the Southern programs, the college teams in the South, the Virginia Cavaliers and the Louisiana Tigers. Those are names of, of divisions in the Civil War. That stuck, and so if, when you get into the stuff, it's really, really interesting when you look at the, the etymology of a lot of these phrases. Well, and then the American term of hooker for prostitute, I know, can be traced back to the Civil yeah, War I mean, as well. Yeah, Joseph Hooker was one of the one of the, the original generals. He was replaced um, by McClellan, who was ultimately replaced by Meade. But basically, hooker was you know there's a lot of different phrases where the you know this is this is debated, but. The North originally used um, prostitutes as the original, you know, germ warfare against the South uh, to give the Southern soldiers syphilis back in the day. So it's it's, it's kind of a, a nasty, nasty war. And it, you know, you look back at just the sheer numbers and, you know, you look at, you know, every time, you know, unfortunately a soldier dies in the Middle East right now and makes the news. And when you look at, when you look at the Civil War, understand that, you know, there were 600,000 deaths in that war. And if you translate that to today's population, that would be a four-year war where six million Americans died. You know, there was one in every four people from 18 to 24 in the South died in the Civil War. It eliminated full branches of family trees when you look at how many people died. And it's, um, the medicine was a lot different back then. There was a lot of people that died from infection and disease. But when you look at the sheer numbers and the, and the sheer misery of what that war represented, it's, um, it's really startling when you just look at the numbers. And I think you make a lot of good points there. One in particular I found interesting is the idea of disease. People don't really realize that it's not until, I believe, World War II where the United States has more people die of battle wounds than they have die of disease. 
because people just didn't really understand. They didn't have the antibiotics and all of those things. And then just looking back at sort of the way that um, like the effect overall in numbers that the uh, Civil War had on the American population, particularly in the South, uh, you have the draft basically gets every single Southern man uh, possible that they can um, get into the war effort. I think it was like a quarter of the population or something like that is the number that I want to say. I think that's the one thrown out there that is mobilized for the war effort. And uh, traditionally, when you hear of a country that is in total war, you're going to have about one-tenth of the population, the working population, mobilized for the war effort. And that doesn't just mean you know soldiers. It means people in war industries. So you've got and two so, and a half times the normal or healthy number, to use those words loosely. Yes. No, it was – they were well, way more happened. involved. But the style of war, I mean, it's the only war in world history. It started off as an Napoleonic war with the style of fighting. By the time it was over, it was a guerrilla war. So it kind of was a transitional period in war in war of world history. You know, so it, it was, you know, you look at the Cornwallis style where standing in lines and fighting, and by the time you got to, you know, Malvern Hill and you got to some of these other battles later in the war, it became complete misery. And they just basically went out there and hid behind trees and, 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 just, and just did whatever they could to stay alive. And, it was. Uh, it really changed world history after that. Every war after that was that was the end of the Napoleonic Wars. It really was. I mean, Bull Run in Manassas, Virginia, was one of the last battles that was fought in that style. And then once you got to Antietam in September of '62 and Gettysburg in, in July of '63, it just turned into a different, complete style of warfare as the evolution of machinery and weaponry was as well. And you know, if they hadn't even invented the Gatling gun yet. They were still fighting with mini balls and muskets and, you know, carbine, you know, carbine muskets and, and, and pistols. It's, uh, it, it really, it's really something when you look at just the number of people, how many future, you know, U.S. presidents and politicians potentially died in that war. There were several folks who went on to fight, you know, went on to run for president like Ulysses S. Grant who won, guys like Hancock who lost, and many other guys. The great-grandson, actually the grandson of Patrick Henry fought for the South. There was a lot of people who fought that, um... You know, you wonder what, you know, many, they say many young men died on the hills of these battles who could have gone to great things. And, and that's, um, that's really the legacy of that battle and that war. Oh, absolutely. I believe, isn't it McKinley is the last president with ties to the Civil War, um, personally? Or is it, because uh, I know Hayes was a general, but I feel like McKinley was also involved. So that's, you know, a good f almost 40 years later that you're going to have this. And then, um, I think the point you're making about the Gatling gun, an interesting thing is that the North and their quartermaster's corps was very conservative in their ideas of sort of tactics and weaponry. The Gatling gun is shown to Lincoln, I think, 1861, 1862, a lot of those sort of uh, sort of crank-operated machine guns and uh, sort of breech-loading carbines. They're all shown to Lincoln. They're shown to these generals, and they're turned down uh, particularly because they thought that it would keep people from aiming. They would just fire randomly, and it, they would spend too much on ammunition, whereas the South was going to be more interested in these kind of weapons. Another one that comes to mind is the uh, Whitworth cannon, which mm -hmm. at the the time, the range of sort of the best rifled guns is about two miles. The Whitworth is breech-loading, has a range of, I think, effective three to five miles, so it would completely change, I guess, where you can reach out and hit troops from a distance, but... The North had access to this, could have had as many as they want. Their gunners are too traditional, where you have the South, which is looking for any sort of desperate advantage they can get over the manpower of the North. They tried to get these through. Um, they tried to get them through the blockade, and they were able to get a couple 
there's one at Gettysburg you can go see on sort of Oak Hill, um, which was during the first day of the battle. They have one up there as a kid when I went to Gettysburg. I'd always, always go up and look at that. Um, but it's it's really interesting sort of the way that technology is used in this war and the transition it represents. Well, the, the ammunition is a good point because, for example, you mentioned Gettysburg. The Battle of Gettysburg, the, the average, it took, they said it took the uh, the weight, the full weight of a man's weight in lead to kill one soldier. That's how many misses they had. You know, for, so for every one they hit, they probably missed about 100 times. So they were trying to, you know, they try to conserve their weaponry the best they can. You know, one quick anecdote from my trip last weekend out there was we met a guy, you mentioned Oak Hill, we met a guy over at the, the, um, the Peace Memorial. Have you been over there, Charles, with Gettysburg? I've actually, uh, this is kind of weird, but uh, my dad and I go there. We used to go there twice a year, so I've been about two dozen times. I actually wrote my college application essay about going oh, right, there with okay. my dad, so I've, I've been there. See, I came home we, from we the again. one time I went and puffed my chest out about how I had been to Gettysburg, and up against <laughs> the two of you, it's just its not even significant. Well, we were there, and we met a guy over at the, uh, the Eternal Peace Memorial, which is right over there at Oak Hill, right where, where he was just mentioned, and, and we met an old man who... Um, who was, he's about 85 years old, and he was telling me he was there in the 1938, the, um, the 50th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. And he says he met an old Confederate soldier. So he says, you know what? He goes, if you want to shake my hand, he goes, you'll shake the hand of a man who shook the hand of a Confederate soldier at this battle. And I was like, holy crap. So he did, and just think about it. I mean, he was probably seven or eight years old at the time. And this is the guy who, um, who shook the hand of an actual Confederate soldier in that battle. You can still go down to that town and meet people and tell these little, hear these little stories, you know, of the, of these little folks. And when I was, I was down there last summer and there was a family who was selling a, a handful of Confederate money. And so I bought a $20 note of a Confederate bill and they were just selling it just to make some money. I guess when the Confederates came in, they, uh, they dumped a bunch of money on the town and their family had quite a bit of it. And, and they kept a bunch of money in a Bible and they were just selling it just to make some money, 50 bucks a pop. And I wanted to buy it anyway. Well, anyway, when he goes, well, the lady goes, where um, where do you live? And I said, well, we live in, you know, Massachusetts. So he goes, just so you know, when you leave town with this dollar bill, it'll be the first time it's left this town in 150 years. And I was like, holy moly. And it's just, it's just those are the stories, the personal stories. I mean, everybody hears a, you know, picket's charge and, you know, I hear about Pettigrew and Trimble and Longstreet and all the generals. But it's the, you know, it's the stories of the citizenry and the town and of all the stuff that, that they endured that really, uh, that really stands out. The stories, for example, of, you know, you hear generations telling stories of the flies were so fat from eating the bodies of the horses and the dead soldiers that they couldn't fly. And the size of golf balls, they were falling out of the sky. They were so fat they couldn't fly anymore. Yeah. You know, and that's just stuff you just don't hear anymore. You know, it's just, uh, you think about that and you're like, wow, that must have been something. For most of us in the modern day, we haven't seen wars in person. We've seen them in movies. We've seen them dramatized. But in the case of Gettysburg, I don't think most people realize you think of that as happening on a battlefield, and it did. But it also just sprawled throughout the entire town. I mean, from what I understand, over the three days of the battle, you just had complete utter chaos in the town where you had people that were shot and wounded wandering into just shops, storefronts, homes, just begging complete strangers for help. You have blood all over streets. You have bullets flying in commercial streets. And from what I understand, they still haven't found all of the bullets. Like, you can still trip over lead in in the town of Gettysburg, right? Think of 150,000 soldiers, okay, crashing into Chatham today. 
The shadows look the same size as Gettysburg. Same time, they even look the same. All coming in there at the same time and just wreaking havoc on the entire town. Now, truth be told, you know, probably would be the worst thing to happen to Chatham. But if you look at the actual town, okay, um, yeah, there are bullets, there are still bodies there. I mean, there are, there are you know, they fired, you know, millions upon millions of, of, of weaponry that have happened there. But the, the actual chaos, you can still go to the town and it's just, which I will tell you, you still see the bullet damage on the buildings. Oh, absolutely. You see the hole in the walls, you see the, the outside buildings all bullet ridden. It's, um, it's like it never happened. They've done a really good job preserving that town the way that was that day of the battle. Yes, and one of the things is the battle actually runs through the town on the first day when the uh, 11th Corps is retreating uh, back up to uh, Culp's Hill. They retreat straight through the town. People are captured in the town. And so the battle, like, not only is it happening around it, it actually goes through it on that first day. Well, it's, you know, they, you know, they come from the West. And truth be told, if um, the most, you know, the... Um, I saw this a million times. The most important two words in the uh, in American history that no one knows about are the two words "if practical." Now Charles probably knows what I'm talking about when I say those two words. But basically, what it is when when Robert E. Lee came in to the town of Gettysburg, he told his um he told his general Richard Yule, "Take those hills if practical." And he was going to take the hills, but he kind of chickened out because he had the "if practical" phrase. He said, "Well, you know what? I don't think it's practical. I'm backing out." If he'd gone in to attack Cemetery Hill and Culp's Hill, that first night they would have taken those hills. They would have forced the Union to retreat to Washington. Now, the North wasn't going to lose that war. But the thing, you know, that's the thing, is people always say, well, what would have happened? But what would have, what would have happened was you had so much war opposition in the North. Uh, if they had one win, if they, if they didn't win Gettysburg, the 1864 elections were looming. And you had a lot of people in the North, specifically in the state I'm in right now, New York, who didn't want the war. You, know, you, had a, you had a phenomenon called the Copperheads up here, where these are people who wanted nothing to do with this war. They wanted to make peace with the South. Lincoln would have lost the election. He would have lost the election to a Democrat named Stephen Douglas, who was, who was running with the, comp, with, with the idea of let's end this war, let's just end this, split the country, who cares, move on. And that was a popular sentiment. And it was really Gettysburg that really won that. And Tina was a Union win, but barely. But coming into Gettysburg, you had two significant Southern wins in Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville. And if they had gotten the one up, up in the North, they would have forced um, they would have forced Lincoln to either sue for peace or hold on and then wait for the elections, which he would have lost. What that battle did, the Battle of Gettysburg, was keep Lincoln as president. That kept the war going. That's the significance of that battle. Another uh, thing think, that you mentioned to oh, me, Darren. Sure. Um, I think you might have had a slip of the tongue there because I think you said he ran against Stephen Douglas, but doesn't Douglas die in 61 of, I want to say, congestive heart failure? I thought it was 66 he died. Uh, no, I think uh, he runs against McClellan in 64. The maybe um, it was McClellan. It was, it was whoever it was. There was, a, there was a Democrat who was coming at him hard. I thought it was Douglas. Oh, no, it was, maybe it wasn't. But whoever it was, it would have been one of those guys who would have taken, that, who would have taken the election in 64. There's no doubt about it. Oh, no, you're absolutely he was, correct. He was, he was on the bubble anyway, and that battles are really what's, what kept him in his president. So whoever it was, it, he would have lost an election regardless, and that, that guy would have, would have split the country. He would have oh. sued for peace with Jefferson Davis, and that would have been it. Oh, no, you're absolutely correct on that point, and – it's even like the two victories because you have at that same time in 63, you have July 3rd is the last day of Gettysburg. July 4th, um, Pendleton surrenders to Grant 
at uh, Vicksburg, which Vicksburg, actually yeah. funny story about that is that in the uh, Mexican War, Pendleton was Grant's superior and actually writes a letter of recommendation or commends Grant on his service and then ends up surrendering to him just uh, about a decade and a half later. But even into 64, it's looking as the war drags on iffy for Lincoln in that election, and it's not until the September uh, – capture of Atlanta in 64 that it really looks like the tide has turned and Lincoln is going to win that election and it looked so bad for Lincoln at one point in the summer of 64 he puts an a sealed letter on his desk and he asks the members of his cabinet to sign the letter or to sign the envelope without looking at the letter promising that they would do what the letter said and he t- will end up telling them later that the letter says like it doesn't look like we're going to win the war if we lose the election you will do whatever is in our power or you will help me do whatever is in my power to win the war before McClellan takes office because he will then sue for peace and the country will be lost. Right. And obviously McClellan still has a you know, still has an issue to, with Lincoln because he gets replaced as, as general as well. So you have a you have a lot of moving parts with that. I mean you obviously Sherman's coming to the South, you know, the um the, the um war the Army of Northern Virginia is having some success. Uh, on the southern side, but yeah, it, it's, it's, you know, you always look back and little bits in history. And I, I've said this before: that in this country, you know, to use a football term, has been fourth and ten three times. You know, Revolutionary War, the War of eighteen twelve, and in my opinion, Little Round Top at Gettysburg. And when you look at what Josh Chamberlain did to hold the left flank at Gettysburg against the uh, against Oates' Alabama, if they were able to flank them and come around the back side. The battle's totally different. They lose that battle, and everything could potentially change. It's a great what if you know, drink and battle, to sit around, around a bar talking about that. But well, you, you realize how close how close we came many, many times, and it's, um, it's really remarkable if you look back and really study it. Oh, and it really is. And uh, one of the things is it's a lot of timing, particularly on that second day, because you have – I mean, Chamberlain is there because uh, Governor Warren was uh, up there with the Signal Corps on Little Round Top and sees Longstreet's Second Corps coming. But – uh, one of the things that's uh, very interesting, and F- Shelby Foote talks about this a lot in his book, or this is where I ended up learning most of uh, what I know about this day, is from that book. And um, Longstreet delays for hours waiting for Pickett to come up because you know he wants, or he wanted Pickett to come up, but Pickett won't be there, so he waits for every uh, brigade and division possible for his corps. So he goes for sort of manpower instead of timing, and um, then there's an issue with they take a very long trek. They take a sort of circum or circuitous route. I'm just messed up that word, but you get the point. Um, they take that. They sort of circumvent the uh, Union line to get there, and the time it takes, they don't actually get into position to fight until four o'clock in the afternoon. They started about five in the morning, and so it's really that timing issue. A lot of people like, and I personally like to think of what happens. If they get there in time, they get there when they wanted to. They wanted to start fighting definitely before 11, so there's at least that five-hour delay. Well, you think about it, I mean, how much a couple of pair of walkie-talkies would have changed that battle. You know, Longstreet, who's always a defensive general anyway, never an offensive general. He's, a, he's put in charge of offensive command. You know, him and John Bell Hood have to come around that right side. They start walking through Seminary Ridge. Next thing you know, they realize they're being watched by the signalman around top, and they're like, oh, we got to turn around. All I can think of is that scene in Blazing Saddles when they're coming through the desert and they hit the toll booth, and they got to turn around. You know, they have to go all the way back around again. So picture this gigantic First Corps coming through, that, you know, coming south, uh, heading towards 
big little round top um, over a Warfield Ridge, and then having to turn around and go back again just to come back again, that serpentine route. Now, you're right, causing about 4 o'clock, and by the time the battle started, you know, you had the flanks coming across the center, um, you know, where Sickles had dropped down to uh, to the Trossel Barn, where, you know, he, he, he created his salience and almost doomed the north as it is. But really what that came down to was the 20th of Maine and the 1st of Minnesota of the north held the, held the central and held the uh, held the left flank. And, you know, it just, you look at the uh, the sacrifices they made and um, really how close and how unorganized the, the northern army was. And obviously you had Meade, who was just a, he was the second or third day on the job, and he was a he was a Pennsylvanian, so he was a little conservative by nature, fighting in his own state anyway. But you think um, of how unorganized it was, and how uh, how you think about that specific battle was a battle that neither really side wanted to fight. It's the only it's the only battle in the war that was fought when it started that neither general was on the battlefield. You know, Lee was still in Cashtown, Meade was still coming up through through Hagerstown, and um, the battle starts. Neither neither field generals there and. And you're fighting for a bit of land that had no strategic desire at all. They just happen to bump into each other. You know, you don't have any sort of, um, you know, there's absolutely no forts. There's no, there's, you know, there's no ports or any of that stuff. They just happen to, you know, run, run into a spoked wheel in the uh, South Pennsylvania. And uh, it's, uh, it's it's really interesting just to see how it, um, how it all played out. To get back to the what if that you floated a couple of minutes ago, Darren, is it a lot of people are in agreement that if the South wins at Gettysburg, a march on Washington happens after that, and you have either a battle in Washington, for Washington, or on the border thereof, and that's one thing that's one what if. But one that you mentioned to me the last time we sat down and talked about this is one that I had never really bothered to consider, and that's that if you don't, if you have a fractured country and the Confederacy goes off on its own, you never have the Western expansion that we have to make us the, you know, the 50-state country that we are now, sure, but you never get close to the 48 either. I mean, you never have any part of the West Coast, the Southwest, or any of the Northwestern land as well. I mean, there, what you had told me, Darren, was that you would have had some kind of a European colony to our West. You're, well, right. The, the war. Don't forget, the war was originally started not over so much ending slavery in the South. It was the question of what was going to happen in the West. You know, is the West going to be free, or is it going to be determined by the states if it's going to be slave or non-slave? And that's where you get that great phrase from Lincoln that the country divided against itself cannot stand. You know, it's either going to be the West is either going to be slave, slave or non-slave, and obviously he wanted non-slave. And that's what really determined the South once he was elected to secede when South Carolina seceded and ultimately fired in Fort Sumter was over the, the it was over the, the destiny of what would be the West. Now what would have happened, you probably would have had a north, a south, and a western country. You would have had probably an expansion of Mexico or the Southwest, perhaps an expansion of British Columbia into the Northwest. But you definitely would have had three countries. There's no doubt about it. It depends on, on who ultimately would have taken that western side. But that's really, that's really what you were fighting for and what you really came to. You know, the Emancipation Proclamation ultimately was determined after the Battle of Antietam because it was really just done as a war power to help free the self-slaves who were basically being considered southern property in a time of war. I mean, that was a strategic thing. And truth be told, if you, if you were to load an Abraham Lincoln full of sodium pentothal around 1861, he would tell you he was being he was no friend of the black. I mean, basically, his goal was to keep this, the country together. That's what his goal, his primary thing was. Slavery was the flashpoint that he had to rally around. And when he pushed the Thirteenth Amendment, it was designed basically, 
you know, for anybody who saw the movie Lincoln, and they did a real good job with it. The 13th Amendment, the importance of that amendment was basically because if the battle, if the war had ended before that amount, that amendment was passed, you would have had the Southerners have a stake in Congress who would be able to vote on it. They never would have got it passed. You look at Congress today, they can't decide what call the sky is. You had a situation just like that, so he knew he had to pass that before the war was going to end or he was never going to get it passed. And he wanted that in the Constitution forever at that point because they've been fighting for non-slavery, a lot of folks, since the you know, since, since Franklin. I really, so that was their opportunity to do it. I've really enjoyed just watching Charles's faces while you've been speaking, and I wish that you could have seen them. Like, it, during all of your other inputs today, his eyes have just been, like, widening, that he's just so enthralled in what you're saying. The Western Country Party just started kind of scratching his head, looking around the room. Is that an angle you hadn't considered yet, or do you not agree? Not, or how do, how do you unpack that. that part? I think, I mean, the thing I think is that there's going, you're going to continue to have some westward expansion, and there's going to be further conflicts. It's going to continue to be an issue, um, whereas when you have the union, it settles the issue because it's going to be one country for all this land. But I think the point where I, I might tend to disagree with you a little bit, Darren, is that uh, I don't think you give Lincoln and his sort of anti-slavery notions enough credit. Uh, I think he's a man who's very mysterious. I think if you look at people in American history, there's no one that people want to know what he was thinking more. And we may have less of an idea of what he's thinking than almost anyone else. I mean people want to know uh, about Lincoln from everything to his religion, his views on slavery, his sexuality. All of those things have been debated far beyond, I mean, my ability to contribute. But I do like to think that uh, from what I've read of Lincoln that he was anti-slavery, but he was, as a politician, unable to put all of his views out there. I mean he always said – um, that he was naturally anti-slavery, but he wasn't sure of his ability in office to um, get rid of slavery. And I mean if you read all of his speeches, I think he talks about it in the uh, House Divided itself Against Itself Cannot Stand. He has a quote that he loves to come back to. He brings it up in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and it's this idea of every man has the right to eat the bread which he earns with his own hands and like the toil in his own sweat. I of course, butchered the quote, but that's the general idea that he'll come back to many times in his uh, sort of public speeches. And uh, then going to your point about the uh, Emancipation Proclamation, he actually has that on his desk for quite some time, and he's just waiting for Antietam to be a uh, – like he needs a victory to show it because he wants to start emancipating slaves, but he he could he wasn't really in a position to do it when this, the North had been losing for a year and a half at that point. So uh, there's a very famous uh, – one of, I believe, Lincoln's five open letters. Uh, Horace Greeley had been ridiculing him for not getting rid of slavery, and he comes back at him, and he'll say, if I could save the country by freeing every slave, I would do it. If I could free the country by freeing no slaves, I would do so. If I could save the union by freeing some slaves and keeping others enslaved, I would do so. But while that's sort of his public talk – I really feel if you look at his sort of uh, um, his speeches and the way that his sentiment continues throughout the war and even in his pre-war years, he really is someone who wants to get rid of slavery, but he's trying to do it in a climate that was unsuitable for a full-on abolitionist to take national office and get any real change done. Right, right. I'm just thinking because you know he wrote in his diary in 1861, and I think the quote is. 
you know, my, my, I forget the exact phrase, but basically it says my interests are not with the black men, but with the future of the country. And so it's, it's really those quotes, I think, not to paint the dude as a slave guy, that's not, a, he, was, he was the opposite, but his ultimate goal, you know, he was going to use that to keep the country together in any way, shape, or form. Um, you know, and, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation was, you know, that, that was a War Powers Act. That was, he was doing that to take the property away from the Southern people. Because he, he considered, you know, he considered basically the blacks' property, you know, basically property of the South that he could take away in a rebellion because they, he had the powers and the executive to do so. And that's really, and so that, that's kind of what he was doing. Obviously, he, you know, he's, everything the way it played itself out, he's the, you know, he's the greatest emancipator and he always will go down with that. But again, his goal was to end the war as fast as he possibly can, you know, to try to, uh, you know, to try to disembowel the South by taking away their number one, you know, industry, which was slavery. Because they had no, they had no industry besides that. It was, for the most part, it was cotton making. They had no ability to sell anything because of the, the, the fleet embargo that was going on in the South. Uh, and England wouldn't deal with them because England wouldn't trade with the slave state after the, uh, the Civil War. So there's a lot of different pieces. I mean, the guy was brilliant a million different ways. You know, the ultimate tactician. He, um, but he's somebody who, you know, his his overall goal was to was to end the rebellion in any way, shape, or form, and then try to find. You know, to, you know, it's like a good football coach. You take away the strength of your opposition and leave them with, with as little as possible. And you know, he's, he's my favorite president. Always will be. He um, he's done a lot for this country that anybody will ever uh, ever imagine. He probably is, as far as president wise, he's probably as best as we, we ever have or ever will have because of the issues this guy had to deal with. I think one thing that the two of you are demonstrating is that the Civil War topic is one that's endlessly interesting. If you dive into it, there's just no limit to all the different ways that you can go. And the two of you seem like you've struck up a friendship in just a little time that you've been talking about it. So for people who are more beginners, uh, what are the definitive books and movies that you would want to dive into in order to start swimming into the deep end of the Civil War? Pool? I mean, obviously, the 1993 movie Gettysburg is one that, um, that's a great read. Um, in a great movie, is a book called uh, Killer Angels by Michael Shara, which is a fantastic read. Um, there's, a, there's a book by a woman in Tilly Pierce who wrote a diary about the Battle of Gettysburg called What a Girl Saw. Uh, fantastic read because it shows you this on the civilian side of what happened. Um, obviously, Gods and Generals gives you a little bit of an idea of the Battle of Chancellorsville into, uh, into Stonewall Jackson. But truth be told, movies and books are all well and good, but the best way is to go visit the battlefields. Go to Antietam, go to Sharpsburg, you know, um, you know, go to Bull Run, go to Gettysburg, and just talk to the people in the town. These are people who, you know, who've been in this town for generations. They'll they'll tell you stories passed down from their great great grandfather of the time when we had a Confederate soldier in our attic and he was bleeding and we fed him and we had soldiers coming in and checking our house. Those are the stories you hear that you're not going to get in the books and the movies. It's, it's, it's the personal stories, like in, like in any situation, are always the best ones and. My, my best thing to do is just is go to Gettysburg, spend a weekend, and just hit the taverns, walk the battle sites, um, you know, go to these places and just hear what they have to say, and that's really the best way to learn. Oh, no, I absolutely agree with you there. My number one thing is going to the battlefields. I mean, Gettysburg obviously has a very special place for me just in my sort of passion about this uh, time in American history, and even, I mean, as it sounds like a, my relationship with my dad is predicated a lot on us going to battlefields. Um, and, like, we took a trip over the spring break, went out to the west, saw Vicksburg, saw Shiloh, saw Chattanooga, all of those things. But I guess as far as books and movies, again, Gettysburg, the movie I've seen uh, many times. And 
if you're looking for like a general history book, I'm not sure it'd be the best thing to start with as your first, um, your first sort of foray into it. But uh, my dad got hooked by reading uh, Bruce Catton's Civil War. Uh, a lot of people are very high on, and I've actually had it assigned as a textbook a couple of times, uh, McPherson's uh, Battle Cry of Freedom, which is from like 88, 89. And then once you get into that, I think the best sort of comprehensive view of the Civil War, once you've gotten into it and you want to find out as much as you can, is uh, Shelby Foote's uh, three-part series, uh, Civil War and Narrative. Uh, I think those are sort of the um, – those are the best books once you get sort of that interest sparked. Those are the books that you go to for the actual history. And I did Shelby, Shelby Ford and, the, uh, and James McPherson are the two best writers on Gettysburg. I mean, McPherson is he's a multi-generational person who actually still lives in the town. Um, there's, there's so many good books to read, but, you know, um, you're just getting out and seeing the sights. But until you see the sights, you can hear all about how Plum Run ran blood for two days, and you can hear about the stuff that went on at Pickett's Charge and the stuff that happened in the cornfield in Sharpsburg, Maryland. But until you go there and you see the actual sights, it doesn't really carry it all together. So, um, you know, Footin' and, and McPherson, definitely great reads. Killer Angels is probably my favorite book. Uh, only because it really gives you a kind of a an easy, quick read on the battle, and that's the one that ultimately turned into the movie Gettysburg. So it's uh, it really focuses on the Josh Chamberlain character. It focuses on the Josh, um, I mean the uh, James Longstreet character, and it really shows the the friction that took place between Longstreet and Lee at the battle, and that's something that's pretty historically accurate. So I would definitely suggest that. Well, that's that's definitely a must. Now to bring it back to the area where you're from, Charles, you're from Richmond. In the North, we tend to know the most about Gettysburg. What happened in your neck of the woods? That you, what are sites that you'd want to look at? Oh, well, in the I mean, present day. I mean, general the uh, sort of the motto of the Union Army was "On to Richmond." So it was a focal point of the war. It's the capital of the Confederacy. My high school, uh, it's a mile down the road from the uh, White House of the Confederacy, and uh, the battles there that are really interesting. Uh, you have in 1862, you have seven days where McClellan. As the uh, comes around with the Peninsula Campaign, uh, ships more than a hundred thousand troops down to the James River and tries to march up on Richmond. Uh, Lee is actually not in command at that time. It's actually, um, I believe, it's Albert Sidney Johnson. Oh uh, no, Joseph Johnson. Uh, Joseph Johnson, because Albert Sidney Johnson was out west. It's Johnson. Yeah. Um, and he's wounded. Lee takes command. Lee had just been a sort of uh, member of the. Not, I forget what government role he had, but he wasn't involved in commanding troops on the field. He takes over, saves Richmond, uh, becomes a hero, and that's really where the war changes when you don't really think about it. It's him coming into command because he is able to keep the South alive for so long and to keep these southern people into the war because they really worshipped – they absolutely worshipped Lee and what he did for their nation. Uh, then about an hour from there, you'll have – in the same area, it's – one of the best places you can go to get a good number of battlefields in the same day because in the same county you have the Battle of Fredericksburg in the winter of 62. You have uh, Chancellorsville, which was in May of 63. And then in 64, in a matter of a week, you'll have the wilderness in Spotsylvania where people will actually, in the wilderness, they would see the skeletons of people who died at Chancellorsville. So you'll have those four, bodies, or those four battles within an hour's drive of Richmond. Um, and then in 64, after those battles, of course, you have uh, Petersburg, which was 23 miles of uh, trenches 
that are interesting to see. Petersburg, the town, has grown up around it a little, even though the town hasn't really survived uh, the battle. It was a much bigger town because of the railroad junctions and all that, and was sort of ruined and was never able to recover because of the siege. Uh, but one of the places I really love to go is actually Cold Harbor, which was uh, right after Spotsylvania in 64. And because it's out in the middle of nowhere, there's no town around it, you really get to see the trenches are still there. So you can see uh, the places where the south was entrenched and then where the north attempted to charge, have a frontal assault on the lines, and then the trenches they tried to dig to save themselves um, because they were just being absolutely slaughtered. It was the battle, I believe, that Grant said he regretted the most because he, he was really just sending them out as sort of like cows to the slaughter. And um, then one more thing, going back to Fredericksburg, I just remembered this, and the idea of uh, that you had, Darren, of when you go to the battles, you really get an understanding of like how improbable some of these things that they did were, and you really get a feel for the battle. If you stand on top of Mary's Heights in Fredericksburg and you look down and you realize that the goal that Butler had the Union troops was to charge up Mary's Heights and sort of uh, take the position from the Confederates, you realize it's absolutely impossible. I don't understand how you'd walk up with nothing on, no one trying to stop me. I would have to be on my hands and knees to get up this incline. And then you realize they have their packs, they're fighting, people are shooting down at them. It's cold. It's literally going to be impossible. And that's where you get sort of the idea of the bravery of these soldiers and what they were doing uh, for what they thought was to preserve the Union. Um, and so that's that's one of the sites in Richmond that I th- or in Virginia that I think is very interesting to see because there's it's the one place where you really get a sense of the improbable thing that these just regular people were asked to do for their country. Yeah, Darren. Yeah, it's, it's kind of it's kind of like you wonder why Robert Lee didn't learn his lesson. You know, he had the Stonewall at Mary's Heights, and then he saw the Union at the Stonewall up and hit the angle at Gettysburg and at Cemetery Hill, and this is not too far afterwards, and. You know, it's one of the things Longstreet was trying to deal with. Was, was you know, remember they had the Stonewall of Fredericksburg. They have it now, and remember what happened there. And you know, Mary's Heights. We've never been up there. It's it's, it's just, he just mentioned. It's what I what I always say is, what are you gonna do if you get up there? Because you have half the Confederate Army behind the wall. Even if you got there, you weren't gonna do anything. So it's um it's a it's an imposing uh it's an imposing sight and. Fredericksburg has done a pretty good job, like Gettysburg, in keeping the place uh, somewhat, somewhat accurate in what, what, what it looks like, especially the um, the western part of the town. And that's the same exact point at Gettysburg, because sure, you uh, traverse that mile of open fields where you've had to stop three separate times for fences and then to reform your lines. You get through the second corps, and the entire fifth corps is right there. Joshua Chamberlain, I believe, is actually positioned behind uh, Cemetery Ridge. So it's the same exact thing in both those situations. I, I like how you brought up that the, they have the stone wall here because it really was the exact same situation just on a uh, longer but less steep hill. You know, those who are doing tonight history are doomed to repeat, as someone once said. But it's an interesting topic, and it's always fun talking to the Lord. I've done about that. Sounds like you just had back-to-back home runs out there about five minutes ago. No, we actually ride a little bit. We're still losing, but um, our guy just got a couple runs knocked in, so... Fans are all, I'm on the fan, I'm on the RS fan side, obviously. We're playing, ironically, we were playing the New Jersey Hitmen on a day when the Whitey Bulger trial has been, has been read. So how about that for irony? And that's about as good as it's going to get. Well, thank you very much for calling in from out there in Cooperstown. And uh, oh, maybe, maybe we can pleasure. get all three of us together in person at some point. When's, uh, do we have dates on your annual trips to Gettysburg next year? 
Uh, not yet. We'll definitely pick a time. Right. I mean, now that um, my kids are getting a little older, their sports are slowing down a little bit. So we'll definitely have to get out there. I'll show you some of the uh, some of the stuff we've been talking about. I think it'd be a uh, you know a lot of fun. All right. Well, have yourself a good rest of your trip, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Let's make sure we All do right, it boys. sooner this time. Josh, have a safe trip home, and we'll uh, we'll root for the uh, the Suns of Shapiro to get a win tonight. How's that? All right. Sounds good. Thank you, sir. It was great to meet you, Dan. All right, guys. Have a great day. All right, that was Darren Weeks on the line from Cooperstown, New York. He just could not, much like you, just could not resist a good opportunity to talk Civil War with another person that knew what they were talking about. And uh, that was a lot of fun for me. I'm probably going to have to go back and listen to it a second time just to take in everything as I was trying to keep the discussion going. But it does seem like there's a kinship among people that are, you know, Civil War buffs, and you can be complete strangers like the two of you just were and go. Oh, no, absolutely, because there are so many people, and like he said, it's such a story, it's such a sort of genre of anecdotes, because everyone, it seems, has a connection to the Civil War if you've been in this country long enough, and so, like, there's always some, each person has their own story, their own connection to the war, and everyone sort of understands that, I feel like, and that's, like, the sharing of those stories and then talking about uh, these different things together is really what brings them together, it's I mean, it's really how my dad and I bond. We talk about this. We talk about baseball. Um, it's a good thing the Civil War is sort of a year-round thing because otherwise we wouldn't have much to talk about from, like, November until early February. Now, people expect, you know, history buffs in general, Civil War people especially, to be a lot older than you are. You are just turned 21. Yes, sir. And so I imagine you catch a good amount of ribbing for for that among your friends at school, things I, like that. I mean, they, I get made fun of for it a lot. Um my roommates like to joke that I'm limited to uh, one fun fact a day. Uh, so sometimes I try and make it a Civil War-related fact, but it's really just – I mean I'm very interested in a lot of different types of history and a lot of a lot of different things. So it depends on the conversation, but I definitely do get made fun of for it a little bit. It's probably the first time we've gone this deep into a show without talking sports at all, so we should probably fix that because you are, of course, an intern here for the Hyannis Harbor Hawks. You did that because you were a big baseball fan. And to start from the historical perspective, I know the one thing that got the two of us talking at the beginning was you are very into Negro League history as well. Yes. Um, what happened with that was I was applying for uh, – there's this thing. Um, I'm forgetting the name of it. But it was a program with the uh, Virginia Historical Society where um, you wrote an essay to uh, be selected as – a scholar with the Virginia Historical Society, you went in, you learned about uh, the Historical Society, what it's like to sort of run a museum, and then you got to meet a uh, speaker. And uh, the speaker my year, which uh, was the summer before my senior year of high school, was um, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, which was interesting because I'm also very interested in legal history. And um, But the year before, I applied and didn't get it. But I wrote my essay on Buck O'Neill because you had to write about an American hero in sports. And I really didn't know much about the Negro Leagues, but I'd always been interested in it just because it's a part of the history of baseball that gets vastly overlooked. They're some of the best athletes to ever play the game, Josh Gibson, Satchel Paige. And whereas their names are remembered and we know like stories and myths, we don't have any like statistics. We don't have a way to quantify how great they were. And that's really sort of depressing to me that we'll have so many great players who don't get the recognition they deserve because people will say, oh, they were playing barnstorming teams, whereas everyone knows that these guys could have played at the highest level and been the best 
in the league. And so I read about O'Neal, and he's an example of a guy. He was a good, he was a good uh, first baseman who could hit for average. He played defense uh, mostly for the Kansas City Monarchs, but like most Negro League players, he played for five or six different teams. And um, I read, uh, I was right on time, which was his favorite phrase and the title of his autobiography uh, about his life. And then I read The Soul of Baseball with uh, Joe Posnanski. He followed O'Neill on his tour of America for a year, being a goodwill ambassador for the game and promoting Negro League baseball. That's a book I think if you're trying to read about, trying to learn about the Negro Leagues, absolutely read The Soul of Baseball because it may be one of the my favorite books that I've ever read. And it got me just absolutely fascinated in the Negro Leagues. And uh, I guess that's where it sort of grew. And then uh, I was able to take an English class my freshman year on sports and American culture. So I went in and I read about sort of showmanship in the Negro Leagues and the idea of were they promoting their cause by getting black baseball out there and showing how good these players were and sort of proving people are proving their skills to people who they really shouldn't have had to prove their skills to, but because of the way American society was, they ended up having to, or was their showmanship actually hurting their image? And should they have not put up with that because they were sort of degrading people's opinions of African-Americans by sort of being showmen on the field, playing shadow ball, uh, wearing fancy or wearing these ridiculous costumes. And so I guess that's one of the, uh, Things that really got me interested. Well, that's another thing about the Negro Leagues is there are so many elements. I mean, there, there's kind of what you learn when you're in, you know, whatever, third or fourth grade, and you learn about Jackie Robinson, and there weren't any black players allowed in Major League Baseball, and that was wrong, and da-da-da-da, and it follows the story. But there are a lot of things about the Negro League experience that you kind of have to dig to find. And I just to name some off the top of my head, they played triple headers. They invented night games more or less invented bus travel. That might be a little bit of a reach when I say that because it might have been in the in the major leagues, the minor leagues, travel. but it was primarily train travel. So they took buses as teams. Now you have a lot of teams charter flights. I mean, at the beginning of like team-only travel from one place to another is an idea you can really trace back to that. I mean, they did a lot of things that influenced or later changed the present-day major league game. Oh, no, and their business, a lot of it, I think, has an influence. I think if you're a minor league baseball official or a owner, looking at the Negro Leagues and the um, the promotions they had would be a great way to start because they were, even though they didn't have a lot of uh, cash flow, they were very innovative businesses, uh, particularly J.L. Wilkinson, who owned the uh, Kansas City Monarchs. He's the one who invents night games. He actually gets portable lights so that they can take their game and play these triple headers all over the country to make profits. And so they really were great innovators on the business side of baseball, although they end up getting robbed because they didn't have these players signed to contracts. A lot of it was verbal agreements. Players would jump midseason from team to team within the same league. And so never heard of such a thing. That doesn't happen anywhere around here. Oh no. But uh the problem was they didn't have these players signed to contracts. So once Robinson breaks through the color barrier and then Larry Doby breaks through about two months later. He gets no credit, but that's a separate issue, um, is that they're signed away. And if they were lucky, they got a dollar for the players. Like, I'm not sure that uh, the Birmingham Black Barons got a single penny for Willie Mays. I don't think they got anything. Uh, the Indianapolis uh, Clowns, I think, got almost nothing. And that's enough. The, the name Clown shows that they were getting degraded for profit, which is 
one of the unfortunate parts, but um, Hank Aaron was their shortstop, and wow. they didn't get compensated for him. A lot of these players, no compensation. They just got plucked, and that's what ruins the Negro Leagues. Is By the 50s, you have the Indianapolis Clowns. They're really the only team, them and the Monarchs, who are still viable at all, and they're just losing money right and left in the 50s. Now, I went probably half of this summer without knowing any of this stuff about you. Just knew that you wrote stories on our website, knew that you were on Twitter, but didn't really talk to you much during games because I'm usually in the room with the play-by-play broadcast. We had a makeup game in early July that was played at noon, and we had gotten breakfast together before the game, and then I was doing public address announcing because Tim Elstrom, friend of the show, had to work that day. I did not. So I do public address. I sit in the middle of the press box, and you're in the area for that. Uh, another domino effect was that uh, Zach Chase ended up on the play-by-play broadcast, another friend of the show that day. We know Zach. We love Zach, and Zach's a very excitable guy. And so on the play-by-play broadcast, for some reason, they start discussing Game 7 of the 03 ALCS, which is just not okay. And I kind of joke with Dylan because he talks about the game a lot of times as, as any Yankee fan would. I mean, it's got to be one of your favorite games as a Yankee fan and one of the top three worst nights of my life, just period. So I've gotten into it with Dylan about it before in that I just don't want to talk about it and I don't want to hear talk about it. So the game had gone to hell. We were losing by, I think, a double-digit amount at the time. Just get, It was a terrible, terrible So, game. of course, I was writing the article. Naturally, yeah, and you had a good trend of covering losses there, even though the team won twenty five games. Yeah, I think we went six and nine, uh, but six I and t- seven and six and ten in the total. Made a late rally though, right? I mean, weren't we maybe one and or two and for a lot of the season? Who knows? I think it actually dropped off at the end, but I'm just mm-hmm. so used to covering other teams. So uh, to get <laughs> it back to you though, I, I go in, you know, just playfully, and I close the door to the broadcast booth, shaking my head, making it clear I don't want to listen to this, and I shut the door. Zach bursts in during the break between innings, like not getting that it was a joke, defending himself, and he just starts shouting about how he wasn't even talking about that game. He was just talking about the fact, you know, a lot of people don't realize Joe DiMaggio was almost traded for Ted Williams, and, he, and he's saying this like it's, you know, this massive revelation that he's making to all of us. And you, who I don't know from a hole in the wall, you look at him and you just say, that's widely known. Yeah, I like to mess with Zach a little bit. Great kid. Uh, he's got a big heart. He big does. heart. Um, everything about the kid is big. Um, but I don't know. I, I like to mess with Zach. And sometimes he'll tell me things that he should probably know that I know. Like he knows I'm a reporter. And he once tried to explain to me what a press conference was. And so I'll just be like, you know, Zach, like I know. I got it, buddy. Like He's like, no, no, you can like – turn on the recorder and you can put it up there and you can record their quotes when they're talking. Like you should do that. And I was like, (laughs) so it's like a press conference. No, no, it's not like a press conference. No, no. And he goes on. And after each thing, I was just like, so it's like a press conference. And he, he just keeps explaining because he gets in the story and then he just goes. And it's a great trait because it's always an adventure. Uh, Always a funny guy to talk to, but I like to mess with him a little bit. So that was an example of that. And so you you say to him, that's widely known. And that begins a line of discussion that we had been having for the weeks that have followed, where you continue to insist that you were not the most quotable intern on this intern staff this year. And I think you still do believe that now, even though I've pointed out many times along the way how wrong you are. 
I don't know. I I think there are a lot of uh, people here who've said some pretty entertaining things. Um, I think I think the quote. I think it's Griffin Jacob to be honest with you because he has the quote of the year. And this, I will, this I will one tone, just isn't fair, but yeah, no, <laughs> you don't have to. You don't have to. There are I, no FCC so I, regulations. Here. Okay, thank God. Because you set the scene first, though, so, so people set the understand scene. it. Um, he has started uh, seeing this girl who I believe her name is Gabby. But uh, for all intents and purposes, we're going to call her Tongue Ring. Uh, <laughs> I know we're going to go with Gabby. That that would be rude to call her Tongue Ring. Uh, so they're joking with Griffin after their like first date, and they're like, "So Griff, are what are the chances you marry her? One to ten? Because uh, Nick, uh, Nick Johnson, I believe, was also a friend of the show, is just messing with him, and he's like, "Ah, oh, I don't know, like maybe a six. And they look at him like surprised, like they That's they expected him to say say one. Yeah, it's very high. I was I was very surprised that Griffin would say that. And he's like, oh, I don't know. But I just got to get her out of this shithole and bring her back to Cleveland. <laughs> and that may be the best thing I've ever heard in my life. You had a lot of contenders. I don't I, That's just like its whole own plane that I don't know that you can get to. But I think I, that's that's a quote kind of similar to I was actually voted most quotable in high school. Okay. And – uh, the other person who was voted most quotable, I'd like to think that we were most quotable for very different reasons. And so we're standing there getting ready to get our picture taken for the yearbook. And she turns and looks up at me and says, so why did we get this? Is it because we quote people a lot? And I just looked down and I was like, I think that's exactly right. why you got it. You answered your own question. Like you answered your own question. So I think I would like to think that if we were getting the awards that he would get it. On the line of uh, Miss Gray, who was awarded that uh, before she went off to JMU. And um, she's a really nice girl. Dated a, one of my very good friends for a few years. Actually, very smart person. But that was just a one moment where she – the light switch didn't turn on quite fast enough. And then once I pointed it out, she realized and she was like, oh, oh God. I just messed now up Now it there. all makes sense. But – uh I did enjoy making fun of her for that one. So I would like to think that he and I would be considered for different reasons. Although I think if it's anything, if I was to get most quotable, it's for my uncanny ability to put my foot in my mouth at any time, really. Well, I have three favorites, and but but to get to them, I need you to first set the scene of where you lived this summer, what the arrangement was. Well, uh, for, just assume your mother is not listening. Yes, I'm sorry, mom. I'm home safe now. Knocking on wood. But uh, I lived in a house off Pitcher's Way, 925 Pitcher's Way, really an American institution. But I get there that first day, and I drive up, and I'm expecting, you know, I'm not expecting anything bad at all. And I get there, and he's helping me move in. He's got his NASCAR hat on, and or he's, like, talking to me. I'm trying to move in. He's He's not helping. He's preventing me because he's got me stuck at the door for a half hour just chatting away. And in conversation – just comes up with, oh, yeah, like today's a great day because it's my first day off probation. And I just was like, I don't know what to do with this. I, I honestly didn't think anyone on Cape Cod had ever been on probation. Um, and so I get this and I'm just like, okay. So I let a little time pass and I'm like, so you can put an extra lock on the door, right? And so, you know, he puts a lock on, but I, I made sure it was one of the ones that you can only undo or you can only do from the inside just because of the fact that his profession is that he's a locksmith he runs a locksmithing business out of a converted ambulance that um 
And so, I mean, he's fine. Very lovely guy. We were supposed to have a barbecue together, but it never worked out. Um, and he's, he's been a lovely guy, but it was an interesting situation. And uh, the room I had uh, didn't have much furniture. It was my bed, a refrigerator. I brought in – I like bought at Kmart one of those like collapsible tables, and then it had a bathroom. So I didn't really have a kitchen. A uh, lot of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, a lot of hot dogs this summer. but uh, And the Foreman I mean, Grill. Oh, and the – yes, there was a Foreman Grill. I see where you're going with this now, actually. I kind of have to give a Best Supporting Actress award to your sister, Grace, who we got to meet a couple weeks ago because she's involved in all three of my favorites of yours. The first one you say to me is I, <laughs> talking about, like, what's on tap, what you're going to do after a game, after you go home, you say to me, I got to go home and clean the foreman grill. My sister's coming to visit. Well, yeah, I mean, I had to make her think that I was keeping the place orderly. I had to keep it nice and neat. And normally, I'm a very like neat person. But this summer, like you know, I started getting. I would be getting up at five in the morning to go caddy, and that really took a lot of the energy that I would normally put into you know generic tidiness. And so the room became kind of a pig pen. Which is sad because my room at school had once been called a picture out of a pottery barn ad, which I took to heart. I was very proud of that. It's probably one of the best compliments I've gotten. That and a girl asked me not did I play football in high school, but what position did you play in high school? Which if you could see me now, you would know that the closest I've ever been to a football field is when I was reporting on the sidelines. Um, So those are the two best compliments I ever got at school. So normally very neat person. Let it go a little bit over the summer, and uh, I mean, she was coming in. I couldn't have you know a dirty foreman grill, and that was the easiest thing to clean. You just you know wipe it off a little bit. Had to get the peanut butter off it and the jelly because I you know tried to get a little creative and make toasted peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. If you haven't tried them, I'd recommend them. You get defensive after that because I said on the spot you need to realize things like that are what make you the most quotable intern, and you said that no, it was the situation that was funny, not what you said. I, I really just – I told you what was happening, and it was just – I get into some entertaining situations, and if you just – you just say what happens, and I get credit with being funny when I, I really don't think that that was me. So she arrives upon a room with a clean foreman grill, and yes. then day or two, you're showing her sights around Cape Cod. Now, you guys had summered on the Cape in Chatham previously, so this yeah, we, was – we'll we try and spend a week if everybody can get together. Uh, we try and spend a week in Chatham, like rent a house or something like that. So it's not like this was completely uncharted territory for you or her. But I, walking up to the ballpark, see you striking up conversation. I said, "So how's you know how's things? How's life as a tour guide? Have you?" And I think I might have asked you some question about seafood or something. And you say to me, "Well, I took her to box lunch today. I'm trying to show her the world." <laughs> uh, that one, I was probably trying to be a little funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that I. I don't know. Box lunch, I mean, you should probably – it's great, very fast. Although you always get the impression that the sandwich is going to be bigger than it actually is. Like it's a very small Well, just sandwich. the word box makes you think that it's going to be filled with a yeah. lot of stuff. And they they actually have the box – like the box lunches that they sell are a very small percentage of their sales, and you can't get a lot of variety. It's like generic turkey sandwich. Like there's no cheese on the turkey sandwich, which kills me. Because I love a good turkey and cheese sandwich. You can't get that in the box lunch, so you can't get like the chip and the pickle. I think there's a cookie and a drink too, which would be a good deal if 
you could get an actual sandwich that you wanted because they have all these sandwiches and all these wraps, and you can get none of them as a combo except for the four that I could make myself. That is maddening. It it was very frustrating. Another intern and I would go there a lot, and it bothered us to no end. We were discussing this, though, and I told you that about the box lunch, there is a loft apartment over it that is perpetually available on Cape Cod Craigslist. <laughs> and you showed immediate interest in that as seeing it as a potential upgrade from where you were. If you were to perhaps return next year, that might be a place you'd consider. And in show preparation for today's episode, I can tell you that, yes, even though I hadn't checked in several months, I've checked <laughs> in the past week. And, yes, it is, in fact, still available right now. I don't know that it's ever been rented. Well, I, it's amazing. You would think somebody would want to live in that space, but I mean, it's a great location. Yeah. Like box lunch, like it's not like it smells bad. Like it smells like a sandwich shop. I would love to live over a sandwich shop. My sister did her senior year of high school, or not senior year of high school. She lived in our house her senior year of high school, senior year of college. She lived over a pizza place, had great subs and all of that, and I loved going there because it was. It always made me kind of hungry though. But no matter if it made you hungry, you could just go downstairs. Like I would, I would love that. They would get so much business from me if I lived above that for a summer. That was quote two. I actually meet Grace at the Cape League All-Star Game, which was out in Yarmouth. Wonderful girl. The following day, I arrive. The two of you are shopping for merchandise here at McKeon Park as I'm walking down the seashells. And I say clearly to Grace, welcome to McKeon Park. She says nothing. And you look at me and you say, thank you, but I've already been. I think I said yeah, it's not my, just... I think it's it's not my first time. <laughs> I think you're right. Thank you, but it's not my first time. Yeah, that, that just I you would say things to me and I would just stop in my tracks and I would just like couldn't think, couldn't move. I would just stand there and just shake my head and laugh and I think I said to you on the walk away. I I said most quotable intern 2013 just embrace it. I I don't want to accept it. I really think it should be Griffin or Zach. Like they with like if I'm not here you know, a few quotes that you enjoy aren't there. But without Zach and Griffin, I think the summer is completely different. Um, I think a lot of us leave maybe a little more sane, a little more sure of ourselves. But they've made me question a lot. Not about just myself, but about the world that both Zach and Ohio. Griffin are in it. Right. Oh, God, Ohio. Just My impression of Ohio is Griffin, Jacob, and Mark Graham. And, I mean – it makes Ohio seem just like a wonderful place, but also a very, very terrifying one. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure. Like, two Ohioans is a lot. It's great. It's maybe the perfect amount. But imagining going to, say, the wonderful place that is Cleveland compared to, you know, the summer resort that I've been living in this summer. No, obviously. But, um, yeah, I'm not sure I'm ever going to go to Ohio, to be honest with you. I'd love you know see the Great American Ballpark. Love to see Cincinnati. I'd I'd love to go around Cleveland, but uh, I'm not sure I'll ever visit Ohio because just imagining running into like the entire Griffin Jacob family. I don't think I'm ready for it. They give off a vibe like it's a serious Wild West out there. Oh, it's I mean it's a free for all. It's like no teacher in the classroom. Like, for an entire state. So it sounds like a great place. 
So you're actually, sadly, the season ends abruptly. We, we piss away a one nothing series lead. Our season's over in the span of about 25 hours. And after that, people start to leave. The players leave quickly. The coaches leave almost as quickly. And the interns generally like being here the most out of any group per capita, and they tend to stay a little longer. You've been here a few days now since the season's ended, but you're leaving tomorrow. So there's a good chance that by the time a lot of people who do listen to this show hear it, you will be either in transit or back home already in Richmond. And the same for a lot of other interns. So now that you're kind of, this is kind of an exit interview from Cape Cod for you. What uh, perception versus reality? What, uh, what were you expecting and what did you get? I probably wasn't expecting to enjoy it as much. Like I wasn't expecting to hang out as much with the interns as I did. Mm. Um, like I brought a lot of books to read thinking it would be some kind of like intellectual summer. I would read all of these different things. I, I mean, to show you how much reading I thought that I was going to be doing, I brought a copy of Les Mis and then I brought maybe a half a dozen other books. And that's not a book that's like I'm maybe a hundred pages in because I tried oh. to read it in the caddy shack with all the like 12 year old kids, which is a whole separate <laughs> issue. But I guess I thought of it more like I was going to like not be seeing as many people or doing things like that. So really like the amount of like the number of friends that I made, these are all great kids, the interns, that was something I wasn't expecting. Uh, I wasn't expecting to get so involved with the team. Like I'd always wanted to cover a team ever since I read on uh, summer of 49 by David Halversam where he just tracks the team. He tracks it ex post facto. He wasn't there at the time, but uh, just following it from the stories he collected, you just get so into the team. I was hoping it would be something like that, but uh, I was really just looking to relax. Uh, the summer before, I'd spent taking German. I'd been in school for two years. It's a lot of work. Like I was expecting to just sort of relax, have a good summer, get some experience writing, uh, writing more baseball articles, and... Uh, really just to watch baseball, everything else has been a complete bonus. Um, so it's been a much, I expected it to be a, a good relaxed summer, but I didn't expect it to, to have enjoyed it as much as I have. Didn't come in the form of a quote, but another classic Charles Condro moment is at that same all-star game. You're walking out to our perch in right field with a whole bundle of things in your hands. You're going, trying to get things sorted out to sit <laughs> down. Your copy of Les Mis falls out of your arm onto the ground. And the text is about three inches thick. I mean, it's something that would only ever happen to you. Yeah, it's and about it fifteen hundred. Funny pages. as hell. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, Normally, when somebody drops a book, oh, you just you dropped a book. I mean, you dropped like a like a paperweight. And now I'm actually in a bit of a uh, an existential crisis with that book because it is fifteen hundred pages. Mm. Uh, in middle school, we were assigned the eight hundred and seventy nine page. I don't. I remember it being eight hundred and seventy nine pages because I was so glad to get to page eight hundred and seventy nine. Mm. Uh, because it was the summer and I was in seventh grade and I was reading Les Mis, but great book, like a very interesting story. I also am a huge fan of the musical. I've, I get made fun of for that, but I'm deciding, is it an efficient use of my time to finish all 1500 pages? Because I could read three or four other good books that I've never read and I don't know the story. I could read those and sort of gain more knowledge. Whereas now I know that, uh, you know, Monsignor Buenvenu is a very great guy, but as opposed to the you know, four or five to maybe ten pages they used to describe him as a great guy in the abridged version, it's about 89 pages that they use no relevancy to the story other than to use 89 pages to prove that Monsignor Buenvenu is a wonderful, wonderful man, 
a great priest, you know, stand-up guy. So is it an efficient use of my time? But I also don't want to quit on the book. Like, it's a very good book. I love the story. Um, like, would it be wrong of me to just drop the book and pick up another that I haven't read yet? I'm thinking I'm going to drop that. Um, like, I didn't – if I would maybe gotten several hundred pages in, I would just be like, ah, I got to finish it. Like, I've started – like, you finish the games you start is my philosophy. Very much a uh, – why am I blanking on his name? You Jim Palmer. Jim Palmer. Yeah, you appreciate the game a start. complete game like I, I love do. a complete game. I, I hate bullpens. Steven Strasburg threw one yesterday. Did you see that? I did not. First about, one ever. About time. They gotta mm-hmm. they gotta let they gotta take the reins off. He's got a big arm. Just let him run. Like with the exception of Rivera and maybe Joe Page from the Yankees of the forties, bullpen not really my thing. So I wanna finish everything that I start, particularly with books. But I'm thinking I'm gonna drop it. But I also I really got back into Lemis when the the movie came out. I started listening to the music from the play again because my dad, very very interesting person, um, he would love being on this show. You would have to cut him off or just like pretend that you were playing and just let him go because he can talk about anything. Like literally, you he can point out of the car at a train track anywhere in North America, but, but particularly on the East Coast, and he'll tell you every company that has owned that track or like where it's going and what it runs just unbelievable how much the guy knows he makes me feel like i don't think i'm like particularly smart i think i happen to know a bunch of random facts but he just makes me feel stupid on a routine basis not trying to but just by the fact that he knows more than i think anyone really should it's it's gotta hurt but um i got back into it because one of the things he's very interested in is he's he was interested in musicals like uh, HMS Pinafore, Gilbert and Sullivan, but I wasn't. I didn't really get into that one. But he loved Les Mis, Would play it all the time. Like if he was, if he was working on, he's a big model railroad person, so he'd be working on his model railroad. Sometimes that would come on. He'd be working in the garage, like doing something that you wouldn't really expect on my own to be blasting. As he's, you know, got the toolbox out fixing something in the yard. But you don't like my sisters and I'm talking about. You don't live in our house. For your entire childhood and not grow up with a strong appreciation of Les Mis. Um, that's actually more than being the history buff because people are nerdy at school. Like I get made fun of for being nerdy. Like more than average I would say. Which I mean you just you just have to embrace it at this point. But I definitely get made fun of for my interest in Les Mis. And the fact that occasionally you know people will hear from my room like Les Mis playing. I get made fun of for that. Uh, some people find it more amusing than others. Uh, my girlfriend just doesn't understand it. Um, I think she can't knock it until she tries it, but that's neither here nor there. And, um, I really have no idea. That's all right. I mean, I, hopefully people understand by now why I wanted to have you on the show and why I'm going to miss having you around. There aren't too many people I can seamlessly segue to and from Les Mis, Steven Strasberg, back to Les Mis. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work like that with most people. Now you're in a, you're it a unique probably should <laughs> unique situation for a guest here on the Friends of the Show podcast because you just learned of the existence of this podcast less than 48 hours ago. Presume you have not listened to any episodes yet. I have not found it yet because you said you were going to put it on a website mm-hmm. and yeah, it would be easier to I'm, find. Yeah, I'm going to be making an announcement about that before we get into this show at the beginning. But yes, friendsoftheshow.com is I bought the domain over a year ago. Tried to build a website through WordPress. 
the the gadget from Podcast Machine, the server where I upload these episodes that distributes it to the iTunes subscribers, for whatever reason, their little embedded widget doesn't show up in WordPress. And That's so, a big problem. Right, so I solved the problem like any good American would, stomped my feet and just completely quit and never built a website. That's just tradition. And <laughs> I recently realized there was nothing forcing me to use WordPress to build the site. I mean, I was just going to forward the domain anyway, so I just decided to build it with Blogger. I really do have to pat myself on, well, not myself on the back so much as Google for this. There yeah, are, but you used Google. I did, and but there are comedians and people like that out there who, who shell out good money to have like an app developed for their podcast that you download and you press the little icon on your phone. It's so unnecessary. If you, on your smartphone, go to friendsoftheshow.com, on your phone right now, it's stupid how easy it is. It looks great. You can just point, tap, listen to the episodes. Everybody should do it. And uh, I would recommend it, and I did recommend it to you for this. This as someone who's made the Hyannis to Richmond drive before, I know just how tedious that can be. Well, it's, is I, it going to be me versus a Les Mis audiobook or? Uh, no, there won't be. I have some German tapes that I got mm-hmm. because. I took German. At one point, I could speak German not well because uh, I'm not that good at hearing. And the way like I have like just like a very small hearing problem, but the way that it really shows up is in foreign languages. It just sounds like mush. Like it sounds beautiful, but like beautiful mush. I think that's probably the nicest thing that's been said about how German sounds. But um, I haven't taken a German class in a year, and it's safe to say that it's almost all completely gone. Um, so I was thinking about, you know, like I put a lot of effort into this, I should listen to these tapes and try it a couple of nights before I like started to get to know the interns. I did do some of these German tapes. Uh, I don't really think I got to the level where anything was coming back. I like, I still remembered the word for like man and woman. And that's pretty much as far as I got through the tapes. Uh, so I was thinking of using those, but I really didn't want to. So I've been looking for excuses and, uh, one thing I can say from being on the show is I would definitely recommend this show over German tapes. German tapes, all right. That's a ringing endorsement. I may have to put and that probably on most the website as a tapes. testimonial. Okay. I would I would go to say almost all foreign language tapes. Okay. You can quote that. I think I might. I think I might. They've got a lot of sidebar real estate that I might use for that. Um, you mentioned something I'm curious about before we go here is – we were a little similar in our day jobs during the summer here. You caddying, which is something typically done by younger teenagers, <laughs> and me working at the beaches as a gate attendant, which is usually something done by high school and or college students. And you do feel – I feel like a fish out of water quite a bit as, like, as I sit there on a Saturday morning reading the Wall Street Journal while the rest of them are all Snapchatting and complaining about how awful their lives are and – you know, the, the parties that they're going to go to and how mad let's, they let's are at their mom for not bringing them lunch. I'm just trying to set the scene okay. as best I can. I think we're probably birds of a feather on this a little bit. Oh. Were there moments where you just felt extremely out of place at your summer job? Almost all of them. Yes. It was really one of those situations where I talked about it with uh, one of the – because there are other people. Like I think I was the oldest, but there were other college kids who do it. Uh, there were maybe like 10 of us who would do it, but show up sporadically, including one of the other interns here. And um, we would talk about it. Jake, the other intern, we were talking. We hated it. Like every part of the job is not fun. I woke up at 5. I went and sat 
in a caddyshack where I really felt like I should have been being paid to be a babysitter because at the beginning of the year they played this game where they would take golf balls and they would throw it off the roof of the caddyshack. So I'm sitting there trying to read. I think at this point I was reading Moneyball and like I'm getting hit with golf balls and I would just look up and glare at them and like I just wanted to say like don't make me come back there. Like that's how I felt in this situation and I really never felt so mature. Um, but I guess being next to 12 year olds, you'd really hope that I felt more mature and like it's 12, 13, even like the 15 and 16 year olds. I re I really actually disliked the high school kids more because they would like pick on the 11 year old who was like smaller than a golf bag. They would like take his lunch. I was like, I haven't dealt with this in years. I just had no, no patience for it at all. Um, and well, I mean, some of the things they would do and they would come up and they would try and start conversations with me. I'd be like, I don't want to talk to you. And it got to the point, it's like, I would just like, they would start talking to me, and I would just be like, yes. And I would, I got pretty sarcastic with some of them by the end of the year. There's this 11-year-old kid, Ducky. Um, and he was, I mean, he got picked on a lot, and I hated that he got bullied. But I also really saw the kid's points, because he's, he's, even for an 11-year-old, a pretty annoying kid. Um, like, he would be like, am I annoying you? I'm like, yes. And he'd be like, oh, I'm sorry. And then he could, like, he, like, actually was, I feel like, upset. He didn't want to be annoying me. But he just didn't know that when I looked up, because he was spitting ice out of his mouth and then kicking it, and it hit me, and I looked up and glared at him. And he's like, I'm sorry. Did I annoy you? And I was like, you did. Like, you absolutely did. And, like, he's like, oh, like, I didn't mean to. And like I said, he really meant it. Then kicks it again, hits me again. Mm. Repeat offender. Oh, I, he was 11, and I had to continually remind myself of that. But it was it was a frustrating experience. Ducky, I, I'm expecting big things from him. Him and a kid named John, who was all very frustrating, um, which is an unfortunate because I would go out and uh, they let us play for free on the golf course after five, and I would go out, and I'm a beginner, and hacking is the best way to describe it. The head of my driver is lost somewhere in the marsh on the fourth hole because I, I to this day, have no idea how it left. I just swung, and I thought it was fine. I was like, the ball didn't go as far as I would have liked it, but it went somewhere, and that's an improvement, and it was in the air, which is even better. And then I just look, and Jake, the other intern, looks at me and is like, Charles, your head, like, the driver head's gone. So... The shaft of the driver now sits in my car as a reminder of my horrible, horrible skills at golf. But this kid is then right behind me, and he's just crushing the ball. And more than anything, like I, I always like want to be good at things, but I wanted to be better than golf at golf than this kid so bad because he was so annoying, and he's also pretty, pretty unintelligent. Um, like he didn't know some words that I like. I can't think of an exact word, but he didn't know words that like. You should absolutely know as, like, an eight-year-old kid. And, like, Ducky knew words, was using words that this kid didn't get. And, oh, like, I may have been more sarcastic with him than I... Because he's, like, he's 16 or 17. Like, he could have his license if he wanted to. So I feel like he has his license. I also have a license. We're equals on that. 
on that. Like we both could have our licenses, so we're equal on that. I don't think he actually has his license. So I felt like with him, I was allowed to be a little sarcastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was nice, with the exception to telling Ducky that yes, he was in fact annoying me and should stop kicking ice at me. Uh, I I feel like I was nice to them and that they continued wanting to talk to me and would like ask me questions in ways that they like thought we were friends. Uh, but I, I really do look at myself as a babysitter who just got ripped off awfully. Um, like I, I think I was going earlier, like I would talk to these other kids, hated every single part of it until they paid you. And that's what got you back the next day because they pay you more than they should. Like not because like they're like necessarily trying to show off, although sometimes they will like for kids of members at the club who caddy, they end up getting a lot more in tips because they of course want to show, look at how much I tip my caddies. And because that word, of course, gets around the clubhouse and all the caddies know, like, oh, you got this guy. He's going to give you this much because he's a cheapskater. This guy gives you a lot because he likes to show off or or he just like some people just really like supporting the caddies. So they give you more. I fortunately got one of those guys to continue requesting me, which was his own mistake. But um, I think I really I'm really I ramble a lot. And so I got lost. It's all very podcast-friendly behavior, my man. Don't worry about it. But I will want to finish where we started, and that's you built, I guess, not a name for yourself, but I guess a reputation for yourself as the the general of the Twitter account in games this season. And I think the defining thing was, I don't know if it was you or somebody else with password access to the account, retweeted some stranger's tweet at the end of our year after we'd lost out of the playoffs. And, And she said, it's not that I'm sad that the Harbor Hawks lost. They were just so much fun to follow. Oh, I, I mean, that's about I as good a compliment that one. I as definitely you can get. retweeted that yeah. one. Um, yeah, I was I was actually a little proud of that one. I got pretty invested in the Twitter. It actually started with the sports Twitter at school. No one was using it my freshman year, and I was like, I was you know trying to you know build a name in the paper, and I was like, I was a freshman being a run. I took any article they gave me. Probably looking back, should have said no, because there were times I was writing like four articles a week, which is just an absurd amount. Like that's like working a part-time job and getting no money for it. Uh, but I, I loved writing sports. I got to write basketball, baseball, football at school. So that's it's been a fantastic experience. But I was writing all these articles, and I was looking at the games, and there's like I had no way to promote the games when I was at them. I couldn't like talk about it until well afterward. And so they like brought the Twitter back. I started using it. There was a virus. I had to change the password. And I just forgot. Like, I kind of forgot to tell everyone the password to the Twitter. So then it just became yours exclusively. It became mine exclusively. And, you know, having that power, slowly my tweets became less and less just like um, free throw good by Sherrod. It was, you know, I I started, you know, ad-libbing a little bit, kibitzing here and there. And then just, you know, tweeting my thoughts. Hopefully, most of them sports related. Um, but sometimes, just on life, the occasional lay misquote. Uh, there have been no lay misquotes yet. That's an interesting idea. You've got two years left, though. I have two years left. Sky's the I have since given the password back because, uh, you know, it's not my Twitter. I don't have my own Twitter, so I kind of used it as my own Twitter because uh, I like. I honestly like. I think Twitter's for like showing news like that, and then for famous people, and so. I used it to show news, and I'm not famous, so I had to use someone else's Twitter. Uh, but I got on there, and I probably enjoy it much more than I should. Uh, I get a kick out of like saying just weird things on Twitter, just like just what like pops into my head. 
uh, like I said, like I don't really like try and plan it out or anything. I think where I started having the most fun was the national championship game. This past year, I decided to live tweet it from YDN Sports. And one time for an article, I got the complete list of every Yale football game in the 140-year history of Yale football with all the win and loss totals and stuff. And so I was just like tweeting like, oh, this reminds me of like this game from like 1879 where we beat Wesleyan 116 to 0. We did, in fact, once beat Wesleyan. I believe it was 116 or 112 to 0. Um, so I was just like tweeting things like that. It's before or, Belichick was there, presumably. You would assume. Uh, before the cutoff era. But one of the things that I think the one I had the most fun with was they were talking about 25 national championships combined between Notre Dame and Alabama before Alabama, of course, unfortunately won the game. But um, I look back and realized you know, Yale has 27 on their own. We haven't won one since 1922. But I thought people should know that, that the leader in national championships were the Bulldogs. Uh, we probably won't be for much longer because eventually someone will catch us, you know, with actual football. But, um, I mean, we, we had some great teams. You know, we dominated the 1890s, won like six championships, really changed the game with the forward lateral. That has a lot. Yale has, football has a lot to do with that. Walter Camp, we have a letter somewhere at school. That's Notre Dame football writing to Yale saying, can you teach us this game? Um, so that's that fun stuff. So I just like – it really combined like throwing out random history stuff with like commenting on a sports game. So that was I think the most fun I've had with Twitter until I got here this summer. And then Laurie made the mistake. Miss Pfeiffer made the mistake of handing over the Twitter. And uh, I think she has seen the consequences. <laughs> That included nicknaming players. There were a lot of what references to song lyrics. Oh yes, and because I mean, a lot of times I wasn't able to follow your handiwork during a game because I was scoring the same game. But uh, oh yes, those were. those were staples. Sometimes you'd make fun of my music choices. Oh, I, I have made fun. Yeah, of you. yeah, I believe one time I requested that you played "Absolutely" by Nine Days, which I think is my favorite '90s song, um, because there are so many great '90s tunes that are played. At Hyannis, uh, in Hyannis at McKeon, that I, I wanted to hear, you know, my favorite. Um, but I, I don't think I ever heard that. I was a little disappointed. Maybe you were saving it for later in the playoff run that was not. Uh, but yeah, I did give some people some nicknames. My favorite was Cy Sneed, the Sheriff. Mm-hmm. I think that one's going to endure. I think that one should endure. Mm-hmm. If he ever makes the majors, I'm taking credit for that because that, that absolutely should be his nickname. His dad is actually a cop. Like, it works. He loves it, which I think was good. Um, and then the song lyrics, we had one pitcher, uh, electric stuff, Jeff Hoffman, but, uh, it came out that he is a huge Taylor Swift fan. And so, um, I, you know, decided to make every tweet about him that I tagged him in a, uh, Taylor Swift song title. Um, I think at the end, because, you know, he agreed this year to have make four starts and then leave a favor to Gasman. And I think at the end, I was like, he has a dominant performance, seven innings, 10 Ks, no runs. Uh, he won't get the win. Jeff Hoffman, I think you should stay, 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 you know, in honor of her, her latest album, uh, Miss Swift's latest album. I th- thought about trying to get some Taylor Swift related uh, nickname for him. But this is the kind of thing, if you force it, it just doesn't work. Like, it has to, it has to happen. And uh, there was no... Uh, no birth of the Jeff Hoffman nickname, which is really frustrating because the kid has amazing stuff and will be doing big things on the mound. What was Fearless? Was that a nickname? Was it an association? Where where did that come from? Uh, that is his tattoo. Okay. 
he has the word fearless tattooed in block letters across his back because he is such a big Taylor Swift fan. It's very lucky for him that she made other albums after her first one because he named it after her second album. But if she just had the first album, he would just have Taylor Swift right across his mm. back, which would have been, I mean, better in some senses. But the levels to him having Fearless on his back, I think it's great. So, yeah, I did use the hashtag Fearless a couple of times, which he actually commented back like, oh, that's funny, guys, because he knew that we knew about the tattoo. Uh, luckily, he never knew that I was the one in charge of the Twitter because, you know, if he ever becomes famous, he's never going to remember me. That's That we can all rest assured of. But I didn't want him having a memory of me because the memory would be negative of you're the kid who made fun of me for my tattoo. And you, it's not the kind of person that you want to tick off. Nice guy, but still, you don't want to tick off someone who's going to be a major league player because you don't want someone like that hating you. So Good points. I hid behind the mm -hmm. uh, Twitter cover there. Well, this has been a fantastic experience having you on here. I wish we could have given the Civil War the full episode that it deserved. I hope people were able to roll with that. And uh, we're going to give you a chance here to go pack up the Foreman Grill. Well, thank you. It's been a heck of a season, and it's been fun being on the show. All right. We're going to be able to get you back either in person or by phone after you make the great escape here. Oh, I think I, I would definitely enjoy being back on here. Now that I've been on and gotten yeah. used to it a little, hopefully it would be a, a smoother Smoother discussion next time. All right. And I may have to give you – I unearthed my Twitter. I set up a Twitter for this show. At Friends of the show was one character too many. So I ended up settling on show podcast, and then I ran into the aforementioned problems with the website. Abandoned it. Completely forgot which email account I associated with that Twitter, and I just found it today. So show podcast is coming back to life, and I may give you the show podcast password just so you can – Continue to recreate the magic in the winter. And so also, if you're listening, keep reading the Harbor Hawks Twitter because I will be on it. Yeah, you're not giving that away. Oh, no. Yeah. I might. If, if they try and take me off, I'm changing the password and keeping it. So. That's not a threat. Or That's anything, a promise. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everybody, to listening to the Friends of the Show podcast, and we will see you next time right here on the Friends of the Show.com.